Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to the Silmarillion Film Project. This is session number 29 of season five. Dave couldn't be uh, here today. Two weeks ago, he was experiencing side effects of uh, the COVID vaccine. And tonight, his wife is experiencing side effects of the COVID vaccine. So the Kale family is getting vaccinated. and uh, uh, But uh, it's all good. Um, so we will miss Dave. He might be able to jump on. We'll see if he uh, joins us in a bit. Uh, but uh, in any case, I have with me this evening Marie Prosser and Nick Palazzo from our writing room. Uh, and we are going to be talking tonight about the culture of the Adine. We're going to be sort of looking, uh, doing a little bit more sort of world building, thinking about um, some of the like kind of big picture stuff with the men and the migration of the men uh, over the course of this season and also thinking in some more kind of nitty gritty terms about what things should kind of look like. We want to make sure we have kind of clear pictures in our heads about um, the the sort of the nature of the cultures of these, you know, both because so, we have essentially not just three different human cultures, but six different human cultures in, in a sense, because both of them have a kind of a beginning and an end point. Both of them, all three of them have a, a beginning and end point uh, and are, are somewhat dynamic. So we want to kind of think all of that through so we can have clear pictures in our heads uh, as we get uh, as we continue on into uh, uh, towards the second half of the season. Uh, here as we'll be doing a bunch of new episodes in a row after this. Uh, so, um, but first, uh, just a, a, a few quick announcements, as always. Um, first, just to remind folks about Signum Academy Clubs, uh, which are have been going strong. It's been fun. My own son has uh, uh, joined clubs, and he's been learning Old English, which he's been really enjoying. Uh, it was really fun to uh, 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 hear my son reading Cadman's hymn, which was uh, which was cool. Uh, so anyway, um, lots of really fun stuff going on on our clubs program. And of course, we are accepted in the Learn Everywhere program in New Hampshire. So New Hampshire high school kids can get uh, school credit for Signum Academy clubs, which is pretty awesome. So anyway, we are, uh, I encourage you guys to look into that, signumuniversity.org slash academy. And then MythMoot 8, of course, the big news about MythMoot 8 is that we are doing an in-person gathering. We're going to be doing a hybrid uh, experience. So for those who can make it, uh, we're going to be... Oops, here I'm like, uh, my computer is moving ahead already. Um, uh, For those who can make it, we're going to be in Leesburg, Virginia at our normal venue at the National Conference Center. Um, And for those of you who can attend only digitally, we will be uh, working hard to integrate you as fully as possible. There are uh, the two different... um, there are the two different digital registrations. There's Mootcast for those who who just want to be able to pop into the uh, the actual sessions, the talks, um, and uh, and you also, of course, get and very importantly, get uh, an archive uh, of all of the uh, talks for the whole conference. So if you um, this is best, especially for people who are not going to be able to be there all weekend, right? If you can't be there synchronously, um, then uh, you can you can you, know, you can go back and listen to those at any time. Um, and then Moot Hub is our digital option for folks who really do want to be part of the immersive Moot experience for the whole weekend, um, but can't make it physically down to Leesburg with us. Um, so sign up for Moot Hub for that, and we will involve you in everything from the events and the sort of special side events to conversations in the hallway. So. Um, that'll be uh, that'll be pretty cool. And then, of course, we have the in-person um, 
options, and you can sign up for like one day, multiple days, the whole weekend. It's uh, it's pretty flexible. So go to uh, signumuniversity.org/mythmoot, and you can see all the options there. If you have previously signed up for Moot Hub, uh, you should have received an email um, giving you links to upgrade if you would like to upgrade to the in-person uh, version. So uh, be on the lookout for that. Um, Next, we have a script discussion for episode 12. You guys are chugging right along, starting to uh, do the battle, right? Episode 12 is battle episode one, right? So, um, uh, and so that's going to be happening on Sunday, May 2nd at 7.30 p.m. Eastern time. Uh, you can join them on uh, twitch.tv slash signumu, um, or you can find uh, the GoToWebinar link for that. Is the GoToWebinar link available on the uh, on the site or is it, or is it just the it just twitch that people tune in for that there is a go to webinar link and um, people can contact Nick for that great excellent very good um, and of course uh, feel free to contribute thoughts and ideas and discussions if you have uh, if you have if you have opinions about uh, the battle of sudden flame uh, this is an excellent time to voice them there um, and I'm then sure nobody has opinions no I'm sure nobody has opinions flame. exactly That's, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's unlikely. But in the unlikely event anyone does, um, now would be a good time to voice them. And then finally, casting nominations are opening soon for season five. We're going to be doing season five casting. Um, we're, we're getting ready, gearing up for doing that. So if you have ideas, of course, we're going to be casting a lot of humans uh, in this uh, season. And I know I remember bunches of times in the previous four seasons when particular actors or actresses were under discussion and we were saying, no, no, we really need to wait until we get to the humans for uh, for some of these people. So um, it's going to be, uh, you know, we've been, I remember last season in particular, it, it was like, with a few exceptions, with a few notable exceptions, it was a little like um, odds and ends-ish, you know, because we had like mostly elves that we had already cast from previous seasons. So the, the new characters who needed to be cast last season were, was a, a, a comparatively small and kind of miscellaneous group, right? But this season we have... Um, a very large group. Uh, not only, uh, not only all those humans, um, but also Mygwen as well, which is uh, which will be a fun casting, I know. Um, so anyway, okay. Uh, that is also the other thing that's coming up. Um, so Marie, they can go to the casting thread uh, the se- in, in season five on the discussion boards for that. Okay, cool, excellent. Yeah, all right, so, um, Hakan will be opening up a nominations form for that shortly. So keep, keep your eyes open. <laughs> good. Cool. Very good. All right. So this is a map of the migrations of the humans as we have determined them. This is, of course, not canon. We've made some changes here. Uh, but, uh, uh, but this is the way. So we, we want to start off with a sort of overview, right? Um, and uh, it's interesting because, like, the... Uh, the straightest but most difficult path <laughs> was like the, the path that is sm- shortest is also the one that's most difficult uh, by the Haladin from their battle here at the beginning, uh, right down by the River Askar and the River Galleon, uh, and then up where they lingered for several months, which seemed to them long, but seemed to Thingol short outside of Doriath over here, and then uh, their rather rash trip uh, through Nandan Gortheb, um, and then down finally to Amon Obo, uh, where they encounter uh, Tevildo. Uh, and um, I, I just love 
uh, Haleth wearing the pelt of Tevildo. It's like kind of hardcore, right? To have like one of our characters wearing the skin of one of our earlier characters, you know, who's been a character for several seasons. <laughs> He's been around for a long time. Um, that's kind of hardcore. Right. This is this is a choice that shows up in Peter Jackson's films among the orcs. They mm-hmm. seem to scavenge the bodies of their foes and adorn themselves with body parts. Um, you wouldn't expect it among the heroes of the story necessarily, but for Haleth, we can make an exception. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I it seems to me totally in keeping with her character. I don't. I couldn't see her. Um, uh, and that's actually, by itself, isn't it kind of an interesting little glimpse? I mean, wouldn't that be a bit of a human elf difference as well? Like the elves themselves would, I think, have it, even even creatures like Tevildo or Shelob or something like that, right? They would have a different context for them. To the humans, they're just monsters, right? They're just great beasts who may be, you know, like Tevildo can talk, which makes him a worse monster, right? A more dangerous monster and a more evil monster, but a monster nevertheless, right? A, you know, a, a, a foe who has been overcome and not a foe that she's going to even like consider. I mean, she wouldn't think twice about, you know, skinning an animal that she hunted and killed uh, and, uh, and, wearing, and wearing its pelt, right? Um, but of course, the elves, especially the Noldor coming from Valinor, Right. I mean, would have some kind of sense that these are not just like normal animals. Right. That these are these are there. There's Einor involvement in these creatures. Right. And that even though they have become twisted and evil, they maybe should. But so it's interesting. But of course, we're also going to be working up towards Baron and Luthien. Right. I mean, Luthien's going to wear somebody's pelt, too. So. Right. The question is how far to take that restriction and be like well only humans would do that his arathel yeah so in season four we had arathel have a white cloak that she got as a gift from the sons of feanor right who had been out hunting to build his cats right so we've already had a character wear one of the cat's pelts um because that's the cloak that she wears to gondolin and then it's her signature item right uh, right yeah so we we did discuss that because the the distinction is kind of like in C.S. Lewis's Silver Chair, where you have the talking beasts, and you don't hunt talking beasts right. if you're a Narnian. Like, right. that's just not a thing that is done. Right. Um, so, whereas if you're a giant, it doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> of course, giants have no qualms about eating humans either. Humans so are marsh wiggles too, right? Exactly, right, right, yes. Exactly, yeah. they're on the menu. Um, <laughs> so that that distinction between how you view others, are they considered completely other and a monster, even if they can speak and are clearly sentient, or are they considered in some way like you and therefore should be treated with some dignity and respect, even if an enemy? Right, exactly. I mean, the fact that Tvildo and his cats have become enemies is, I mean, there's no question. It's not like they're going to they're gonna hold back from fighting them, you know, when it comes to it. It's just a question of how they would treat them. Um, so does Aradel know where her coat came from, where her cloak came from? I mean, is she... Is she, like, is she complicit in that? Or, or is this, like, I guess what what I'm asking is, do we think this is a, like, sign of the sketchiness of the Feanorians, basically? 
Right, right. It, it, it's left up to interpretation, but mm -hmm. I would say that it does imply a fallenness if you're going to treat your enemy as something that you can skin and wear. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, the Feanorians not having qualms is maybe well established. At this right. Point. Exactly. Yeah. Qualms are relatively few on the ground over in that part of Beleriand. Um, yes. Yes. And how much Aradel herself knows, um, at the very least, she may not know that these giants can't, giant cats can talk. Right. That may not have come up. Yeah. Yeah. Because she... Right. She we, didn't, we didn't have her present on the hunt or anything like right. that. She was just visiting them and they gifted her this right. cloak. Right. 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 Which, even if and she the knows it... one of the giant cats that we see talk is to Vildo, anyway, so it's right. not like... Right, right. It's true. I mean, and that by itself... Yes. Like, I wonder... Um, I wonder if... I wonder how many of the other cats can talk. We never even really talked about that much. You know, that there are other... Um, there are other werewolves. There are other great cats with Tevildo. Um, are there other vampires as well with yes. Thurin Grethel? Yeah. Yes. Okay. We definitely have other vampires. So we have. We've killed several at this point, so they're they're not all Thurin Grethel. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Um, right. What, did we kill them in battle? Was it in battle that we killed them, or or did we? Did they get um, caught? Callus' spying? father killed one by. Oh, right. of course, yeah. Right. I'm forgetting. And, right, yeah. The... Um, when they attacked the ships, the elves um, from the Havens also had to shoot some of them yeah. down. Okay. Season three, episode seven, that is. Okay, okay. Yes. All right, there we go. All right. Yeah, and I had forgotten about the one with the Haladin uh, earlier on. Um, yeah, yeah. Okay. All right, so... But, yeah, I actually quite like how indefinite we've sort of left that. You know, there are these... Monsters, and we don't. I mean, it is very clear that Tevildo uh, and uh, Drugluin and Thuringuethil are, you know, very much sentient creatures who are part of Sauron's, um, you know, inner circle. Um, <laughs> all of whom will be worn as pelts sooner or later at this point. <laughs> we can all get together and wear Sauron's entire inner council as yep. as, as as outerwear and upholstery. Uh, that's really nice. That's really nice. I like that. That's, um... Uh... <laughs> We're just setting the precedent, that's all. Yeah. Just, I mean, we might as well go with it at this point. I mean, why spare Tevildo, really? Uh, right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, of course, it's going to be interesting. To, it's going to be interesting to sort out how to handle that exactly with Baron and Luthien. Um, but right. Baron's attitude towards animals is very extreme for a human. And yes. He's mm -hmm. completely vegetarian and he's friends with animals and he wouldn't think of killing them. But I, I guess wearing a pelt that was already there. <laughs> right. I mean, it's a perfectly like, good pelt just lying them. there. <laughs> yeah. exactly exactly besides which Drogluin is an exception it's almost like you know with Baron Drogluin could be an exception like in the other direction right just as the elves might be like well these are the rest of these might perhaps be beasts but Drogluin himself is clearly you know um, there is there's, 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 there is a fallen Maya in there somewhere right and that's something that's worthy of respect um, 
Baron would be like, yeah, I respect beasts, but not him. <laughs> right. I mean, he, he, he's, he's not one of the beasts who is my friend. Um, you know, he is a, he is a, you know, a, you know, Morgoth and Sauron's creature. And so therefore, yeah, uh, I, 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 I could imagine Baron kind of seeing that kind of flipped around in its way. Um, it's yeah. more what you call guidelines. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But anyway, here I got all distracted talking about the people on the move here. Um, uh, oh, yeah, it was Tavildo's cloak that distracted me, of course. Um, right. So they end up there in Amon Obo, there in the forest of Brethil. Now, um, so with the House of Haleth, what we're going to be looking at is where they come from, the kind of very humble roots that they come from um, as, you know, sort of homesteaders out there um, in the very very southwestern corner of Thargelion um, and the so the new society that they set up for themselves in the forest because they were not forest dwellers before, right? They're going to become um, and what they are going to become are basically the model for what in The Hobbit um, Tolkien calls the woodmen, right? Like those those men who live on the western borders of Mirkwood in The Hobbit are clearly of the same kind of cultural group and you know it's not they're not the same people obviously but um um but when he was of course when Tolkien was writing the hobbit he was borrowing freely from the Silmarillion all over the place right um and one of the things that he was um that he certainly seems to have been thinking about um was i think these folks um in particular we 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 get one of our um best glimpses, really one of our only glimpses of them as a people um, in the Turin Turinbar story um, when Turin is uh, among them and also when, so I mean first he's kind of on the outskirts when he is because um, uh, it's the same culture, right? I mean like this is uh, where is my cursor? This is Amon Ruth right here, right? Which is also What's in the background behind me? Um, this is this, this is Hamon Ruth, um, which is where Turin and the Outlaws eventually go live, right? So Turin and the Outlaws, when he joins the Outlaws, they're all they're living before they move to Amon Ruth. They're living in the forests here, that is on the outskirts of the lands of the Haladin, um, and so the the woodmen whom they are raiding basically are Haladin. Essentially, that's that's their culture, and then so we get some glimpse of them there, especially in the uh, uh, in the Children of Horan, not in the published Silmarillion shortened version, but in the uh, in the later version, which you can read in you can read bits of in Unfinished Tales, in which you can read in full or all put together, I should say, uh, in the Children of Horan standalone. Um, there and then, of course, finally, when Turin goes to them uh, and lives among them and becomes their leader uh, near the end of Turin's rather checkered career. So that's the society that they're going to kind of become. And so that's what we want to be thinking about tonight with the Haladin, where they came from and where they're going there. Now, with the... um, uh, with the Esto lads here, um, they're the, the, we're trying to figure out what to call them, Marie, and you weren't here to rein me in when we did that. So anyway, uh, <laughs> with, with, I, still, I still like Esto ladders. Uh, one through Esto lad. The Esto ladders. Okay. Yeah. Uh, uh, the Estoladders over here, right, we have them starting off and then they move over to Dor Loman. So there's both they and the house of Beor experience some radical transformation, 
right? We have them living on their own over here, and then they come and settle and become the people of Dor Loman, closely allied, most closely allied of all of the three peoples with the elves, um, and living most in close conjunction with uh, the Noldor of Hithlum up there. Um, so we need to be thinking about both of those and ha- both both of those cultures uh, and what directions they change and what are the implications of that change for them. And then we have got the House of Beor, which really is in three states. It's the only one of these which is in three distinct states. We have the state that they're in when they arrive um, in Osirian, the first of all of the three houses to arrive here. And then they go to Nargothrond, and in Nargothrond they change radically, and then they leave Nargothrond and go to Ladros, and in Ladros they change radically again. So we have the three different states um, and uh, wanting to think about similarities and differences, not only among these different states for the individual lines, um, but among each other as well. And so that we try to understand uh, the characters of these people, because, of course, having established this in the in this season, right, season five, we're kind of doing a lot of work uh, to establish these cultures, because what we're going to get more than anything else, I think, in future seasons is going to be individual characters, right? So we need to know, um, we need to have a really clear um, kind of landscape established, right, Um, of, you know, what these, what the final state of these cultures is like and where, um, and where they came from so we can know the differences and the the distinctions among them. Um, Because then we're going to get, you know, we're going to get Baron and we're going to get Hurin and we're going to get Turin and we're going to get Tuor. And, um, you know, so there's, there's, we need to understand all of those things uh, and what all this stuff means. All right. Anything else you guys want to add about the kind of overview here before we dig in? All right. Excellent. So the uh, dotted line here, uh, Marie, is the basically kind of the terrain that they were controlling, essentially, right? The Esteladers? That that group is nomadic and has a bunch of different settlements that move around. Mm -hmm. So I just kind of indicated the area where they're existing, but they're not not an individual settlement other than the Estelad gathering spot. Right, and it's a it's a big fat white space on the map, right? Yeah. Right. Um, to, it was generally just to remind us that they were having contact with their neighbors. Right. Um, if you if I just had circled the name Estelad, I I was afraid we might um, be misled to think that they're not interacting with, say, the elves of the Syrians, for instance. Right. Right. Yeah. No. And this is going to be really important for us to remember. Um, as we move into in the next session, we'll be talking about episode seven, which is the um, which is the council, right? In Estelad. Right. Uh, so um, it's important to remember that they are. I mean, they're they're coming up against you know the march wardens of Doriath. They're coming up on Aeol's terrain. They're going right along the boundaries of the Feanorians. They're encountering the green elves. Um, so although they have found a nice spot where they can have their herds and roam fairly widely without getting into too much trouble, like trouble like they would if they tried to do that in Thargelion, I mean. Um, Mm. uh, They, nevertheless, are definitely, um, at the very least, encountering folks, if not actually encroaching, especially, I would think, this northern bit would be 
uh, one of the sketchiest parts, right? One of the places where they would be most in peril as they're uh, they're putting their toes over towards the Feanorian lands there. We decided that Amlock and his family would be from there, mm-hmm. I believe, yeah. if I'm remembering correctly. Yeah, yeah. makes yeah. sense. Makes sense. And also helps to explain why Amlock ends up in that direction, right, when he, mm-hmm. when he goes over there. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, cool. All right. Um, so let us... Sorry, I'm just like kind of mesmerized by this map actually like I just keep I'm about to advance the slide and then I keep stopping and staring at it um, we can always come back and check it later if we you can need always to come back again. and check it later okay all right all right House of Bayor. So let's start with the most complicated thing so we have the transition from a migratory people first to a settled folk in Nargothrond and then the second migration up to Ladros to form an independent settlement as part of the siege, and they are going as we see Maring and do it like instantly. Um, they are the one who ends up way on the front lines, right? I mean, this is like the front lines. There's nobody fronter uh, than they when they end up up here. Um, yeah. Uh, so that's really interesting. It's, it's a very extreme move uh, that they go on, a very deliberate move in that way. Um, they could have, I mean, look at all this white space, right? I mean, look at this. Right, they they wanted to leave and establish their own spot. They could, look, there's nobody in Neverast these days, right? Nice place up there, right? Right. It obviously wasn't just an issue of leaving Nargothrond. It was a very mission-oriented decision of where to go, yeah. and that calls back to their initial decision to enter Beleriand in the first place. They were a very mission-oriented group to start with, so it makes sense that they would retain some sense of that mission. Right, and that's the sort of primary continuity, the sort of the central thread of the people of Beor, right? That they're, whereas, like, if the Haladin are the ones who are looking to be kind of left alone, right, and not be a part of things, the House of Beor is in that sense on the other extreme, right, where they, they have a purpose and they believe in a purpose. And ultimately, that's why they're going to be getting so frustrated in Nargothrond, because they are... Um, their purpose. They're being protected. They're learning things. You know, they're developing as a culture in some senses. Um, But they are not being enabled. Um, You know, and this is, of course, one of the places where we come, um, where we're going to be confronting, which is important because, of course, as we've been discussing from the beginning, the characters of Andreth and Fin- and Finrod are really the kind of key central characters for the whole season. And um, the um, um, the core discussion, like the core debate there, um, it's, it's re- really where so many of the um, uh, it's really where so many of the uh, of the the differences between elves and humans really come to the surface, right? Um, most forcibly, uh, more than anywhere else, because what Finrod considers mere preparation for what is to go, like in, for the elves, this would be just a time of preparation for, you know, the, the purpose to come. He doesn't ever envision himself as thwarting the purpose of the people of Beor. Um, but of course, in the end, 
whole generations of folks are going are going by are being born and dying and not doing anything not accomplishing anything and they feel that they are uh, that they are stagnating. Um, I really like the suggestions you guys had about these sort of uh, material symbols that they have, the staff and the stole. Um, uh, you guys want to talk about those? Sure. Yeah. So basically what we're doing there is we're representing different aspects of Bayor's leadership, right? The stole represents the the mantle of his responsibility, his wisdom, and the um, specifically responsibility of uh, passing on knowledge from mm-hmm. one generation to the next. Mm-hmm. The staff disappears for a while. Adonel doesn't get the staff. The staff is a representation of his directional leadership and his leadership in action. Right. Right. So when Barahir and Andreth are kind of co-guiding the the um, the people in Ladros, they are each representing a different facet of Beor's leadership. Right, right, and it makes sense that the staff would fall out of use in a sense. Right, um, I mean, in a, they're basically indoors. Right, you know, you know, you don't need you don't need a walking staff indoors. <laughs> like it's weird <laughs> to carry around a staff inside. Um, and so there's a sense in which that they're always they're always indoors, right? They're always in that kind of environment, um, and so no one ever used it, no one ever needed it, no one ever even thought of it. And so I I, I really so you guys were imagining a scene, right, in which Finrod gives the staff to Andreth, right, as kind of part of his sort of blessing upon their departure, right? Yes, correct. Yeah, and that's great. I think that that works really well, and 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 is is a really good opportunity to demonstrate Finrod's um, Finrod's understanding, right? His de- the development of his understanding of uh, you know what's going on there and what's and what's needed there. Right, because there's a concern that the House of Beor is not completely unlike the Noldor. Right. Where they, you know, go to a Valinor and then decide, wait a minute, we don't want to be in Valinor anymore. Let's leave. So right. it was kind of important to demonstrate that Andreth's departure from Nargothrond was going to be much more cordial and much less bloody than Feanor's departure from Valinor. Right. right. No kinslaying, no ship burning, right. no Doom of Mandos. Like, Finrod gives his blessing. He, yeah. He, he, understands and permits this to happen. Right, right. Yeah, no, it makes a nice departure to have, like, if, in, if you know, if Feanor had maybe, like, had a sit-down like that with Manway before he left, you know, talk it over a little bit. Um, yeah. Right, the part where Andreth is not Feanor is why this goes so much better <laughs> yes, for her people. Really, yes. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, and, you know, of course, it, it, you could say it doesn't end up well for her people, as, like, so many of them are going to be exterminated, but I don't think that that really invalidates her choice at all. Um, you know, I mean, it's it's one of the things. In fact, I would, I hope that we will build towards a reflection on that towards the end of the season. Like, I'd like to actually draw attention to that because it could look like a failure. It could look disastrous, right? And and Agent Andreth, as she watches 
you know, the battle come and the, the destruction of her people and their new settlement, I'm sure that thought's going to cross her mind, right? Like, oh man, <laughs> should have stayed in Hargathrond after all, I guess. This was a bad idea, right? But, but I, I really hope that we can have her rejecting that, basically. Well, also, the, it's vindicated in Barahir's rescue of Finrod. Mm-hmm. Right? right. I don't know that we're necessarily going to be able to get a scene where Andreth able to express, I guess I did the right thing in bringing us right. here so that we could all, you know, nearly get burned to death. But if Barahir had not had an army of men standing at the ready to assist King Finrod, Finrod probably dies. Right. Right. And the quest of Baron fails. And the New Knife never happens, and Arendelle never goes across the sea, and so on <laughs> right. and so forth. Right, right, right. So yeah, we'll we'll show that action. I don't know that we'll have Andra decide that it was worth it because too many of her people have died, and she's grief stricken and um, upset and in, in the aftermath of the battle. She's not going to yeah. be like, "It was worth it, totally worth it." <laughs> right, um, right. But the audience, hopefully, will see that. And she will have a chance to speak to Finrod. And Finrod can tell her that he understands what she did. And yeah, he and understands that they wanted to, you know, choose what to do with the time that is given to them or how exactly. we want to have Finrod talk. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And, you know, and Nick, even thinking ahead towards the, you know, the chain of events that are made possible, as you were just suggesting, um, we could even give Finrod some kind of, um, not like a too detailed a foretelling, but get some kind of sense that like it's it's not just that he's personally grateful. It's not just that it's worked out for him personally because he got rescued, um, but that he has some, you know, even just like a conviction that good has been brought about by this like even though disaster you know has fallen um you know upon the people of Beor um yet good has come from like they have fulfilled their like he should have a conviction i think finrod should have a conviction perhaps you're right andreth is too grief stricken and kind of embittered anyway um but finrod could have the conviction that like they 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 did it like they have fulfilled like they have served their purpose. They have fulfilled a purpose. They have played a role, um, even though it was a tragic role, um, mm. as are so many of the roles that people have to play in Middle-earth, you know. Um, and even there, one wonders if that also could be kind of an insight that Finrod gains from this, you know, that um, <laughs> because his role that he is going to play is also going to be tragic, right? It's going to be, in the end, he's going to do something very similar, right, to the House of Beor. He is going to be, you know, he has been spared so that he can eventually give his life in, you know, an apparently hopeless cause in order to save someone else, even though he himself dies, right? So, um, you know, he's 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 going to reciprocate um, what happened to him, um, and it is going to be, you know, part of this sort of larger... Um, larger purpose. Um, now, Stephen H. asks a really good question. Speaking of Andreth, where do we want her to go after the Dagor Bragalach? Dorloman, Brethel? Um, that's a great question. What what happens to her? I wanted her to survive the battle, right? Yes. Um, but um, I didn't think I, much about what happens to her afterwards. A retirement plan may have been suggested for her at <laughs> some point in Episode 8. Okay. 
Um, okay. When um, she has an encounter with uh, another very famous female human character. Um, so. Yeah, we definitely do put Andreth and Halith on screen together and let them meet and talk to one another in two separate episodes because why wouldn't you do that? Right. Um, they meet on the way up, right? When when they're yeah, when they're traveling up before Andrea makes her decision actually. But oh really? So she Yeah. Like the the people of Halith are part of what helps Andrea uh oh, shape her idea of what yeah. happens to people. And yeah. we can I mean th- there's structural reasons why um, that why having them meet while en route could have been a problem. Um, mm-hmm. But this gets us more Halif on screen, and, you know, it's that's never a bad thing. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean... You... Uh, but, yeah, so we definitely will have Andreth with the refugees who are fleeing from Dorlomen, or sorry, from Dorthonian at the end of the battle, and some of them will end up in Brethel, and some of them will end up in Dorlomen. Um and the two important characters that we will care about are that Rian and Morwen are among these refugees as right. children. And where they end up matters. Yes. Um, where Andreth ends is up to us. We don't have any like strong reason to send her all the way to Dorloman, but if we wanted her there, you know, we could let her go with the refugees to Dorloman. If we want to let her settle in proper the end of her days. We could do that. Um, the idea is that she's not going to go back to Nargothrond. Yeah. I mean, it seems to have, more than anything else, uh, a sort of symbolic significance, doesn't it? Um, I mean, because I, she's very old by this time, so she's not well, she's going... She's only about 70 in our story. Okay. Okay. So, yeah, she's not like that. But... She's, not, she's not that old. Okay, but she's less old than I thought she was. She's 94 in the original text, I understand but right. in our story, she's seven. Okay. All right. Okay. So that, yeah, that is not as bad as, uh, uh, that's not as bad as I thought. Um, but on the flip side, we have been hoarding a collection of human relics in Brethel, and I'd hate to break up the set. So. <laughs> Brethel is where all the Andrew cool people course, go to retire. Andreth yeah. is going to end up with Narsal. So wherever we want Narsal to end up is where we should put Andreth is what right. this is coming down to. Right. Um, which I I was thinking that some of the material culture and the items are, are things that we should talk about um, in this session since we're thinking about the cultural significance of things we see on screen. Yes. So I'm not going to ask you to give the entire history of Narsal at this point, but to keep in mind that Andra's destination is also Narsal's destination. Yeah, yeah. Um Yes. Okay, so let's actually... We haven't really talked about Narsal in a while. So this seems as good a time as any to pause and just recall. Um, what's the history of Narsal? As we, no, Narsal was forged by Telkar, of course, as Aragorn says, right? So yes. that's so we clear. kept that, because you wouldn't change that. <laughs> of course. Yeah. Um, so Narsal is specially commissioned by Mythros, Mythros for right. um, Ignor. Right. Because Agnor's sword broke during the Dagar um, Aglareb. So he was in need of a new sword. And Mithros is in need of some new allies because everyone hates the family. <laughs> right. So he was like, aha, I will get the dwarves to make a nice new sword for my buddy, um, half-cousin 
Agnar, who maybe Buddy. will tell his brother. Yeah. Who will tell his brother not to hate me so much, maybe. <laughs> maybe. Um, it was worth a shot. Uh, so that was the uh, the origin story for Narsalus that we had it specially made for Agnar. Uh, Agnar, of course, is in a relationship with Andreth that doesn't go well, and he will die in this battle. Right. So the sword can be recovered after his death, and Finrod can return it to Andreth as a like here he would want you to have this <laughs> kind of moment right <laughs> so he's handing the sword to a 70 year old lady who's like thanks <laughs> right <laughs> i always knew he would die in battle um <laughs> right right and then that's how nars ends up becoming an heirloom among men right so she so brings it down to brethel elven yeah so if she brings it to brethel then it's in brethel and eventually someone will have to take it to the Havens and take it to Numenor and all of that. Right. But that's up to, to us to figure out in the future. I, I still love the fact that we're setting uh, Narsal up to be basically Turin's backup sword. You know, like <laughs> Nar- Narsal is like the second best sword available to Turin. <laughs> the sword time. that he doesn't choose yes. when going to fight Glaurung. Exactly. Right. So, yeah, so if we want it to be used by um, characters among the Haladin in the future, we can have it, should, you know, show up in certain scenes or whatever, as long as the sword gets brought back to the people and not left in like the hill of the slain at <laughs> right, yeah. the near knife right, <laughs> we can't right. put it there <laughs> just about anywhere else like people can pick up swords that are dropped it's not right. a problem to have a character use it and then die yeah that's that's actually a really interesting question like it is a little bit tempting to have at least one moment in the story just be like it was almost abandoned and then somebody just happened to pick it up and that's how it like continues on mm-hmm. like that would be a little bit fun but of course one also feels like it should be a big deal. Like it should be, you know, the size of deal that Narsal is should be greater and greater as the years go by, you know? Um, right. As time goes on, it becomes a very unique sword. Yes. Um, and among people like the Haladin who don't have um, swordsmiths of their own at, at the beginning of this story, they would obviously value that. Yeah. But... Um, during the first age, it's one sword among many right. <laughs> great right. swords that have right. famous <laughs> makers and everything. I right. think it, it wouldn't be that difficult to have an and it was almost abandoned moment. That shouldn't be that hard to engineer. Right. Um, especially since because I'm like, I don't remember how much of its actual lineage we're told other than that Telkar made it. Telkar made it in the deeps of time is what you know Aragorn said. Right. We know that it was we know that it was a Lindel sword. We don't exactly I think know how he came right. by it. We know how he came by the Ring of Bari here. We don't exactly know how he came by Narsil, though presumably it was similar, right? I mean this would have been by the time of Numenor, even by the time of the beginning of Numenor, it would be a significant relic of the ancient days at that point. Um and so it was now the sword of yeah, the king. It's Right. The question is, yeah, whose heirloom is it? Whose family is it being passed down in? Because by the time you get to Elendil, it doesn't necessarily have to have been from Samarian, from Elros. Like, it could have been any of his ancestors passing down the sword. Right. 
Right. right. So all that has to happen is for someone to lose track of it, of its history at some point. And we have the situation that we discover in Lord of the Rings. And you can tell that it's made by Telkar because presumably she signed it. Right. Um, as at like you do. Right. So it would make sense for, you know, for even if it, if it's lineage was lost um, to not to us, not to the audience, but to, um, to the people of Middle Earth, but they can still tell that it was made by Telcar. Right. What if? What if it doesn't go to Numenor? I mean, not for a while. What if it's? What if it stays in Middle Earth and is ultimately a gift from Gilgalad to the faithful? You know, way further down the line, right? So we could do we could do a kind of a re-gifting, like it's given back again, for, like it comes, gets back into the hands of the elves and then goes back to the men. Um, not necessarily like as far back as Eldarion, but like later on, you know, with, with the faithful who are still trying to help Gilgalad in Middle-earth and, um, and, uh, and they're having an increasingly bad time of it uh, as things dark, you know, so like, like as things are darkening in Numenor and the faithful are still remaining faithful and trying to help in Middle-earth, it could be a gift to the house at that point. That would at least give us another, because th- if we make it an heirloom that gets passed down, like if, if, if it goes on the first boat to Numenor, basically, right? Um, it's not going to be the king's sword because we know what the king's sword is. The king's sword is Thingol's sword, um, Aron Ruth, right. right? So, um, I, so it's a little bit. I mean, like, and this is the second best sword in Numenor, and so it's going to. And but like, basically, it just being kind of passed down from one person to another. It ending up with the uh, with the lords of Andunia is not crazy. I mean, there's nothing strange about that. That would be easy to engineer again, just like the Ring of Bari here ends up with them. Um, but, but in a lot of ways, it's going to be kind of idle, right? It's going to be, it's going to become, I don't know. I mean, I guess, uh, there are things that could be done with that, but I I almost kind of prefer it being, playing a role in Middle Earth, like with, I mean, like it could be Elrond's sword for crying out loud. Like Elrond could use it it or something. It would be nice to make a second age story involving Narsil, where Narsil does something other than sit on the mantle of people in Numenor for Three thousand years. That's exactly what I'm. It's the mantle so. thing that I was trying to avoid. Essentially, that I was thinking right. it might be cool. So, yeah, and, be, and if it were something, yeah, and only gift it to the Minorians later. Then we have a whole story with it, and it's cool. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And so, Stephen, I, I, I am suggesting that it become the sword of the Lords of Andunier. But again, if it's just if it's from like of old, right, from the time of the first Lord of Andunier, it was his sword, and, and it gets passed down. That's fine. And there's no harm done there. But gang, and it's going to mostly be collecting dust, uh, you know, for much of the time that that happens. Um, whereas if we re-gift it, right, <laughs> then it becomes, um, it becomes like, it, it could be called even, right? Like, this is the sword of the faithful, right? Um, uh, and that's kind of a fun angle, right, to add to it. Like, if, if, if that, Maria, is kind of its second age story. Right. It becomes the sword of the faithful. Um, And we could we could eventually get around to, you know, like some sort of Gilgalad slash Elrond story that ends up with like the moment where it gets passed right to a to a human again, to a Numenorean. 
um, one of the lords of Andunia. Um, I like that idea. I, I like the idea of telling a story. So. Yeah, yeah. In which case, so if we leave it in Middle Earth, um, it also helps to explain why, again, there was no con- like. We don't want to have there be competition, right? We don't have we we, we don't want like you know Elros being like, hmm, which sword shall I take? <laughs> you know, Narso or Arunruth? I, you know, he just he takes Arunruth. Um, but um, so we just need to leave it at the Haven. So that would just mean it would need to end up with Gilgalad or Elrond, as I say, or Kierden. Or the Three characters who are alive at the end of the first age. Right. And <laughs> right. right. No, they're not numerous, yeah. but El- they're significant. Everything. Yeah. The Silmarillion is literally his family history. He's related to everybody in the story. <laughs> yes. He probably wrote it because he yeah. ignored everybody who wasn't related to him. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. But that's why I'm thinking. Um, that's why I'm thinking it should. Be- I, that's why I'm tempted to give it to Elrond, basically to have it become Elrond's sword, um, and that he uses it. Um, you know, Elrond, and see this. This is cool because then it's still very active, right, in the war against Sauron, right? You know, as Elrond is is the herald of Gilgalad and his right-hand dude. Um, but it's also really cool when, like, the son-in-law ends up with it later on, right? It both makes the Battle of the Last Alliance kind of fun, right? I mean, it's like a fun angle in the Battle of the Last Alliance when, like, the Sword of the Faithful is drawn again, you know, uh, in, the, in, the, in the Battle of the Last Alliance. It, it makes... It, it gives this like you know manifest destiny thing right to the battle of the last alliance in a sense it's it's this like fulfillment of, you know elendil is stepping forward to fulfill this you know this important and this ancient role um and the sword is like the symbol of that um but again it's it was it's kind of fun if that was yeah. elrond's old sword right and also if the um while we probably wouldn't go as dramatic with this as the films do um, but the sword is what identifies Aragorn as the heir of Elendil, and it's his status as the heir of Elendil, which um, means that it is by being faithful to him that the um, the dead of Dunharrow are able to uncurse themselves. Yeah, ex- associating. Having all of those well-built-up associations of faithfulness, right? Faithfulness in, uh, you know, like it, in the Numenorean context, faithful to the old, you know, the one allegiance from which you may not be absolved in life, right? As Amandil says, and and so on, moving forward, right? If the weight of that, right, the kind of symbolic weight of that, is behind Aragorn as he bears Enduril, um, you know, in the Lord of the Rings, that's really cool, right? Um, um, what that means for Gondor more. I mean, it's it's kind of fun. Uh, this is, of course, the great payoff, right, of doing film film, right? In in The Lord of the Rings, in the books, the fact that this is the sword of Elendil returned is like a huge deal, right? Like out of antiquity, returning uh, beyond hope into the present. And it will, st- it will still have that, right? It'll still be that when we get there in film film, except... That'll just be like the latest thing, you know. Have this like, you know, th- three times as much weight. That's only the modern history of of that sword, um, and it will it will go all the way back to like the love of of Ignor and Andreth, basically. Uh, you know, yeah. is is 
um, you know, the, the, the sort of sort of final thing that, you know, as we, as we will draw attention to that, you know, at the end of this season. Um, so I think that's pretty, I think that's, that's pretty cool. Um, and, uh, makes that, makes that fairly weighty. Plus, of course, it's also just makes it more fun that, uh, you know, Elrond is hanging on to the shards of his old sword for <laughs> like several thousand years, you know, um, uh, you know, like you do. Um, so it's, it's, uh, yeah. I mean, I'm kind of imagining a scene, you know, like, uh, Elrond receiving the shards of Narsil and, you know, you know, him wielding the sword and being like, ah, you know, <laughs> the, think of the memories of like, you know, his time with Gilgalad and everything. Right. Who broke my sword? But, you know, you just can't give, you just can't lend things to these, uh, these, these humans, you know? Um, but anyway, it's that's fun. I think that's I think that's very cool, um, and uh, and and also you know again overlays with this sort of extra texture the you know the kind of regifting of that. So I mean, I'm, I'm imagining Andoral reforged, right? Brought by the Elvish Smiths to Elrond, and then him kind of rebestowing it upon Aragorn. Um, uh, and again, like that, that moment then again would be, you know, we can have lots of like visual echoes to the, like the original bestowing of the sort of the faithful by Gilgalad, um, you know, or by Elrond himself, Gilgalad probably since it's Elrond's sword, like it would probably come from Elrond. I, I, I can't wait till we think of, it won't be for a long time yet, but there's gotta be a moment, right? There's gotta be a really significant moment when one of the Numenorean faithful does something really significant, you know, that leads Elrond to give him his own sword, right? And, and, you know, hand it on to them. That's a really symbolic moment. And, um, uh, so yeah, something really, really powerful will have happened. We have no idea what it is yet, but, but it will be awesome when it happens. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, if, and if we want Elrond to get the sword, it's very easy. When the Feanorians sack the Havens, they'll just be like, oh, look, that old sword, and pick it up and steal it, and then give it to Elrond when he's old enough to have a sword. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> a gift. So have Mithros regift it to Elrond, right? Yep. Yeah, because of course he'd recognize it. Obviously, he was the one who commissioned oh, it yeah. in the first place, right? So yeah, he could regift it to Elrond as a symbol of reconciliation, right, between himself and Elrond, right? To make Mithros himself is feel all better. about reconciliation when he's not killing people. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Which he does with the greatest regret. Really, he does. It's uh, mostly the well, the second greatest regret. I think Magua regrets it more. But um, <laughs> but anyway, there's a reason Magua is their dad, and Mithras is the one giving them swords. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, but yeah, no, I think it's um, um, I, I think it's good. Yeah. So if if that happens, you know. All that, all that, that transfer from Elrond to the faithful, you know, that when Narsil becomes the sword of the faithful, would just have to happen early enough. I mean, and we've got several millennia um, to work with there, uh, with the wars of Sauron and stuff. Um, so yeah, yeah. In fact, it could be, it could clearly be then, right? Like the breaking of the siege of Imladris, somewhere in that general area. Hmm. We can work with it. Anyway, it's fine. Yeah. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna think about early second enough, age right now. Early enough that he's not giving it directly to Elendil. To Elendil, exactly. Yeah. 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 That's yeah. all we have to do. 
by the time it gets to Elendil, it's his family sword, and it's and it's a very significant. I mean, especially as the times darken and darken and darken for the faithful in Numenor, it will become a more and more important symbol. Right? This is the sword of the faithful. This is the. Um, uh, again, I'm I'm sort of imagining. Uh, in fact. I'm now imagining the scene where Amandil is actually holding Narsil when he delivers that speech about there is only one, you know, one allegiance from which one cannot be dissolved because it's when he leaves that he's going to hand the sword to his son, right? That's when Elendil's going to get it, clearly, right? Is that the, so yes, I'm, I'm imagining like, I can even picture it, like he's holding it, uh, you know, blade down, right, with a hilt between the two of them as he speaks his speech about how he's going to do it and then, you know, Elendil's holding it, like they're each holding like one, one hand on the hilt as he's, you know, blessing his son and leaving, like absolutely, yeah, yeah, I know, clearly. So it's, it's very, very significant to them by then. But again, it only has to be in the family for 500 years for that to be, have had that, especially given the 500 years in question, right? The last 500 years of Numenor. So, <coughs> so yeah, <coughs> I think that's, um, I think it's cool. I think, I think, I think that, that, uh, that, that really works. Um, Stephen, as far as, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, Stephen says, why would Elendil be the only known wielder of Narsil if Elrond is, uh, is, is, is just as notable. So first, a couple things there, uh, Stephen. First of all, yeah, but like he's gifted it to them, right? Elrond would want it to be known as the Sword of Elendil because that's the symbolic significance of it, right? It's, he would, he's the one who gifted it, so he would stand by the gifting, Right. Um, right. Um, and especially in lore, which he has a hand in, uh, you know, Maria, as you were suggesting, the lore that he has a hand of uh, a hand in handing down in writing, he is not going to emphasize his, you know, he's not going to call Narsil his own sword. He's going to call it the Sword of the Faithful and the Sword of Elendil. Um, um, yes. Yeah. Because especially since, I mean, Elendil's final usage of it, right? You know, his final usage of it in the battle against Sauron and his giving his life, uh, uh, you know, in the, in, in the, in the final fight with, this is like, he's, he's redeeming the oath, right? I mean, he is, he is showing himself faithful to the end. Um, and so right. in that sense, the, 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 the death of Narsil, right? The breaking of Narsil um, is in that sense, not tragic, right? And therefore also, the more appropriate, right? That the shards of Narsil are what cut the ring from Sauron's hand, right? It's perfect. It's just, it's great. It's lovely. Um, and so, so Stephen, I can, yeah, I mean, and he, he can, he can have other swords. Like, you know, they have other, they have the technology. They can make. Like you do. Yeah. yeah. Elrond knows people who can make swords. He, he, totally. He, he's got a whole staff, right? So, <laughs> so yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, uh, that's totally fine. Um, I, but, I can't wait to come up with the lineage for Gilgalad's spear. That's going to be way more interesting to me. Yes. In fact, we have to think about that soonish, don't we? Mm-hmm. Yes. So Gilgalad uh, is born now in season yeah. five. And he would appear as early as the end of this season. Um, he is in Minas Tirith with Oradreth during the um, Dagor Bragalach. Right. And then in the aftermath, when Minas Tirith is taken by Sauron, uh, in early season six, he'll be removing to Nargothrond with his sister and his father, right. and presumably his mother as well. Um, <laughs> and then we'll be involved in whatever court intrigue we have with Kelrim and Curifin versus Oradra. Right. So both Vinduilis and Kelrim so play a role in that story. We have uh, on hand, therefore, a very natural, like, um, assuming that. Um, 
assuming that Igloss was made for Gilgalad, like was his weapon originally and not a hand-me-down, which again is, of course, not an insult when you're talking about weapons, right? Um, no. But um, assuming that it was made for him, we have an obvious candidate. Celebrimbor could have made it for him. Yeah. Celebrimbor's there, yes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so. Um, so, yeah, all we need is an occasion or a reason. Like, we just need, we, we need a relationship there. And we've established the relationship between Celebrimbor and Oradreth, right? Correct. Mm-hmm. They're good friends. Yeah. So, so making a gift for or the dress son, you know, nothing would be more likely. Yeah, this this is uh, it's, 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 it's getting easy, right? So now we just need an occasion and like why eye gloss, like why the icicle, you know, why um, why the cold spear? And uh, so yeah, we're definitely gonna need a story for that. But that's is, is that a season six or season seven story? You think that'll be season six because okay. the um oh right during the baron and luthien story family. right yeah yeah we've got yes. we're breaking up yes. the we're it, yeah we'll have to have a, a pretty significant subplot in nargathron so we'll probably start the nargathron story before baron gets there yeah yeah um to establish some of these dynamics and you know yeah. figure out what's going on Okay. No, that's great. Okay. So yeah. So we'll have. Uh, so yeah. That's that. That's clearly. I, I think that's that's pretty clearly where he gets it. Right now, we need a history for it. Right. I mean, you know, we need. It's, it's forging is good and everything, but um, you know, we're gonna we're gonna have to be following Igloss fairly closely here um, in order for in order for that to happen. Um, is is it important to you if, if whether or not Gilgalad fights in the Dagor Bradlock? No, okay. I don't think so. Because I mean, he could, or he could be in Minas Tirith the whole time. Like it's, he could be part of. He could join up with Finrod's army right. that gets trapped and needs to be rescued by Barry here, or he could be hanging out with Oradreth and then be part of the, um, the the siege and uh, taking of Minas Tirith. I'm thinking. I'm thinking the latter. It's a little bit tempting to have him with Finrod. I mean, it's a little bit tempting just to like start getting him on screen, basically. But like, sure. let's not be greedy. He's going to have plenty of screen time, right? Oh, I mean, he's going to be the longest lived elf hero of all of the elf heroes except Elrond. So um, he'll have he'll have his moments for the entire Second Age. Uh, but so that's one thing. I don't, we don't we don't need to be greedy with him. The other thing that I'm a little worried about, I would I, I don't want to dilute the Bari here Finrod thing, right? So, I mean, mm. on the one hand, it's a little bit cool to be like, and Gilgalad is also saved by that moment, so now he also has a link in there, but I think to me that feels like it waters down the Finrod story and the, you know, the Barahir Finrod Baron thing. So, maybe not. As long as we're, we're aware of the the potential benefits of of tying the um, the faithfulness of Elendil to Gilgalad to this other moment uh, where where Barra here is faithful to Finrod. Just throwing it out there that 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 the two things are at least tangentially related. Thinking of the faithfulness thing. Yeah. Yeah. But it's the, I mean, there's plenty of other attachments. So it's not like we're yeah. It's not yeah. like we're uh, we're suffering from a, a dearth of them. Yeah. The hardest thing about Narso is it's going to be idle for a while. Right. I mean, it's going to get buried in Brethel. I mean, almost literally. Right. I mean, if we're going to have it almost lost at some point. Um, 
and uh, and again, the most exciting thing that happens in Brethel, namely Turin and the slaying of Glaurung, is not going to involve it, right? We can't even we can't even bring it out of retirement for that, um, you know, bring it out of Hawk in Brethel. Um, so it wouldn't be until somebody ends up with it down at the Havens, um, and Mithros ends up, you know, Mithros loots it off of somebody's corpse that we finally get it back and get it to Elrond. Yeah, the, there's not too many heroes among the people of Brethel as far as the battles and stuff go. But um, is it Haldir who fights in the Nirnaith? One of them yes. fights in the Nirnaith. One who's married to Glora, though, whoever that is. Right, right. <laughs> um, so, I mean, we can put Narsil at the Nirnaith if we want to, as long as someone brings Narsil home. Right, right. Someone's got to find it. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, right. Yeah, Stephen H. is pointing out that only three return. Right, so, right, well, only takes one <laughs> to get Narsal back <laughs> to Brethel. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Michael, uh, Michael D. was suggesting, what if, it, what if Gilgalad has an inferior spear that breaks disastrously um, either in this battle or, or, or at another one, and then you know his, um, I, you know, Iglos is sort of the improvement. One way or another, he's gonna be, isn't he? Gonna be at the attack on Minas Tirith, right? When Sauron takes Minas Tirith, he's gonna be involved with that, right? Yeah. So we're gonna get the opportunity to get Gilgalad in combat pre Iglos, assuming Iglos comes from Celebrimbor, which seems mm-hmm. like destiny. Um, so. Uh, besides which, it's just super fun to connect Gilgalad and Celebrimbor at that point. Because, I mean, Gilgal- Gilgalad and Celebrimbor is like the second age, <laughs> right? So uh, showing the beginning of their relationship and them working together cooperatively from day one way back, uh, you know, way back uh, at the beginning in Nargothrond, um, uh, where it all started for them is is really is is that's just too much fun to pass up for sure. Um, but yeah, I could see him, Michael, I, I could see us kind of setting it up, having him lose a weapon. Right. And, uh, and need a new weapon. Um, uh, when he, when he finally goes down there. Um, yeah. Now, uh, um, of Gondor was asking, um, on Twitch and YouTube, um, are the seasons going to be, um, uh, going to, to be their best to be chronological with all the simultaneous storylines. Yes, we're trying to be chronological all the way through. It's challenging in places. We're going to have to... We're already kind of bending things a little bit. I think we're going to bend things a little bit. Well, we're, we're seeing. I, I think we're still going to debate the question of how we're going to do Hurin and Huor in Nargothrond. Or, sorry, in um, Gondolin, I mean. Um, that's one of the challenging I, bits. I believe the intention is to reveal in season six that they have vanished right and then begin season seven with their time in gondolin to show where they have been okay right um that was what was floated already obviously we can discuss that in later seasons the real challenge will be telling the stories of tour and turin which happen more or less simultaneously but we probably don't want to intermix them (laughs) But I don't know how you want to handle that. That's a question for down the road. That is a question for down the road, but it's a fascinating question for down the road. Especially because they do kind of meet. They literally cross, right, you know, at that one point. So, um, uh, yeah, 
Yeah. And, you know, it's all kinds of tempting. I got to tell you to break up the story of Turin. I mean, like the story of Turin Turin Bar. I mean, I'm sorry. Like it like saps my will to live every time I read it. And uh, it's like just, it's so unrelenting. Like it's so unrelenting, that whole story. And so, you know, paralleling, telling those two stories in parallel instead of in series, it's a little tempting. It's a little tempting. But, um, well, yeah. the, part of the problem is that chronologically they don't they don't really line up, and they it would be very difficult to get them to hit the same kind of beats at the same time. Yeah, it, it, it is true. It is true. They're thematically rather different stories. They are. They are, which is one of the things I'd be interested to see. But as you say, that's a question for another time. Um, for several years down the road, um, not too many. What is that? We'd be bumping up against that in season six. Season six is Baron and Lithian. Season seven is the Nernite. The new, uh, up to the Nernite. So, so it'd be after it, that. Be, we have not yet discussed what season eight will look like. Yeah, for, for, for planning season eight, basically, is where this decision would have to be made. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it's basically, it's the tour story that's told as flashback, essentially. The rest of it is chronological, right? Um when you read the Silmarillion, it's the two-hour story, which is like, but now, going back to the Nirnaith Arnoidiad and following this other thread, you know. Large chunks of the Silmarillion are told non-chronologically. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's true. I, certainly when you get to, like, the, yeah, yeah, I mean, it's true. But I'm thinking of, like, the, you know, you get, like, the the Dagor Bragalach and the Bar- and Baron and Luthien and the Nirnaith Arnoidiad and Turin and the fall of uh, Doriath. And then the fall of Gondolin, which is kind of next, except like, wait, meanwhile, we have to go back and retrace Tuor and what he did through that whole time and how we got there. Um, uh, so that's that, that's what I'm, I'm saying. Like it's, there's, there's this generally chronological flow in that portion of the Silmarillion, except for Tuor. Tuor is the big exception. So, yeah, yeah. Um, yep. Well, it's going to be uh, it's going to be interesting. <laughs> it's going to be interesting. Um, I, uh, um, yeah, I'm going to have to. We're 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 going we're gonna to have to see. But that's not that's not today. Getting back, to, where do we get Narsil? That's how we got off onto all this. Um, and the staff of Beor, right? Okay, so <laughs> let's focus back again on what we're supposed to be talking about, which is the House of Beor, and it's so. Um, from when they arrive over, Nick, you were thinking of them as a, a, an almost like Stone Age culture, right? Uh, yes. Technologically speaking, when they cross the mountains, right. right? Right. So when Bayor, so basically the three different cultures are in three different stages when they arrive. Mm-hmm. So uh, Bayor's people have no metal tools or weapons whatsoever when they arrive. Right. Right. Um, they've kind of been moving ahead of the wave of human culture. And so and they haven't really stopped to establish trade relations with anybody on their way. So it's not, you know, it. they've j- just been moving too fast. They're too focused right. on getting to where they're going because they're basically on a spiritual pilgrimage, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. 
Right. No, that makes sense. That makes sense. And I like the fact that we're sort of showing them to be, uh, it's it's a fun opportunity to show us a group. And we do this to some extent already with like the green elves. Right. Um, uh, uh, that is to show a society which is not very technologically advanced at all. Right. Has very little metallurgy or anything like that. And yet is not like a primitive culture either. Like they are um, they are they have. You know, they have some learning, but more importantly, like they have a purpose and they have art, like we have their song and everything. Right. So we have, you know, we have art and music from them. And, and, uh, you know, they are um, uh, they are they are good and an important people, but um, but crude. Right. They don't they don't have much in the way of technology. And so while they're in Nargothrond, the House of Beor is going to be learning a lot. Now, one of the things that we had talked about, you mentioned here on the slide in which we had talked about a good deal earlier on, is that they're going to be, they're going to become a bookish society while they are in Nargothrond. Mm-hmm. They're going to become literate, but they're going to be utilizing the written word, which they're going to learn from the elves differently from how the elves do, right? It's going to be an, uh, one way to kind of emphasize this whole idea of keeping annals and archives, um, is going to be really weird to the elves because they don't do that. Um, they, they write, but they don't write for that reason. Um, they don't write to keep records. Um, they have living memory. Exactly. This is something that people so easily forget. Like, people forget how weird Rivendell is from an elvish perspective. Like, I mean, and by the Third Age, it's not quite as weird. But I think because Elrond is like the first elf most anybody meets, right, who reads Tolkien, uh, you know, and Elrond in a lot of ways becomes like the archetype in some ways for elves, right? Um, I mean, not exclusively, but anyway, I mean, he's pretty close to it. Um, and of course, he's the lore master, right? And he's, you know, in this house and, and, and uh, you know, it's not like his books are referred to very much, but it's pretty clear that there is much lore gathered in that house. And he's the greatest of lore masters as Boromir, as well as Denethor tells Boromir. Um, so we kind of associate that with elves, but that's really, that's not normal, right? That's not the, the, the that kind of... Uh, adherence to written lore and collection of written lore is not, especially among the elves of the first age, it would have been largely unknown. So I like that. Um, But of course, this is going to immediately be one of the things that's going to kind of point to the problem, right? On the one hand, they're keeping records. On the other hand, there's nothing to talk about. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Right. This another year in which nothing happened. <laughs> it's going to be like the annals of the House of Beor in Nargothrond are going to become very boring, right, as they are keeping them. And, but that could well, be a thing. I could even imagine that being a kind of um, something that really kind of not brings it to their attention, but but uh, is is a way to really kind of highlight that. Right, because they have stories from before. They have stories of their journey and of their quest and of what they fled from in the east that they don't want to talk to the elves about. Right. Um, so they do have a an oral tradition, right. which presumably is written down at some point during their stay in Nargothrond. But they're not adding to it. Right. Yeah. Right. Like this year's annals are who was born, who died, and like how much grain we bought. I guess. Right. right. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, do they just keep ledgers at this point? Do they? Yeah. No. Exactly. It's. Um. And again, that. Um. 
and thinking of Andreth, right, in her role as wise woman as well, like the the the, the passing on of <clears throat> stories of the old days to the younger generations is still important, and they've written them down, and that's a good thing. And um, so again, I mean, like that by itself, actually, I mean, the written records of the House of Beor in Nargothrond are almost a perfect symbol of the problem of the situation, I should say, right? Because on the one hand, they now can write, like they now have a have written records like they now have these stories and some of these stories can be things I mean we have some fun opportunities here right we can show some of the books right that they have some of the books that they've written um, those books can make cameo appearances like in Numenor basically like in the in, in, in Elros's library in Numenor he may still have some of these books um I know some of them are not going to survive because we're going to burn Ladros down to the ground, but some of them will escape with the, you know, with the women who flee. And, um, but we know that some of the pre Beleriandic legends survive in Numenorean lore. Tolkien talks about that. Um, and this is my number one candidate for where those come from, basically. Um, so yeah, I mean like there won't be many, but, but there could be a couple, like there could be, there could be, you know, we could show on screen, um, for super attentive people, like some of the very, very ancient, uh, you know, records of the house of Beor that are, you know, of the, of the older days of the pre Beleriand days, um, which are still retained by the, you know, the greatest lore masters of Numenor. It kind of makes me wonder if the Athrobeth itself is actually a retelling and reframing of the book of Adonel or the scripture according to Adonel, you know, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. something like that. Yeah, that's, of course, the context in which it comes up when Tolkien is talking about the Athrobeth yeah. and the tale of Adonel and stuff is where he talks about the survival of some of those stories into into Numenor yeah. and how the tradition of the you know, in his like, of course, as he does in all of his later days, like how did the tale of Athrobeth come to be preserved? Uh, you know, so, um, you know, like the the, 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 the tale of the Athrobeth. Um, so anyway, yeah, that's um, exactly that's exactly the kind of thing that we can uh, that we can have. So so again, so again, there's good that comes, right? This is good. They wouldn't have this if they didn't gain, you know, this technology from the elves. Um, but of course, it also at the same time draws attention, Marie, as you were saying, to their, you know, how, how lame the, the later editions are, um, and they know like the very preservation of the story of their people is a continual reminder of that they have not fulfilled their mission, you know, and, uh, and that, um, although they're appreciative, they have not, um, you know, they do, they will not have the opportunity to do so here. Um, Nick, tell me more about the metalworking that you're thinking of them learning there. Like when they leave, how well armored are they? I'm thinking middle, right? That is like, mm-hmm. if, if the house of, uh, if the, if the Haladin are still like sort of the least technologically advanced from a military perspective by the end, right? Um, and I would assume that the House of Hador would be the most because they would be most fully integrated with the Noldor war machine up there, right? Yeah, yeah. So for um, because basically I envision that while maybe the first generation or two of the men of Beor who are in uh, Nargothron progress their knowledge of technology by leaps and bounds after that it kind of like there's a diminishing returns right because the elves 
aren't really teaching them as far as they need to go. Right. Right. So when they leave, they have a basic understanding of what is happening. Right. But they're not, they're not experienced Smiths. There are no, like, there are no Smiths who are masters of their craft amongst the Bayorians when they move to Ladros. And so when they move to Ladros, they're basically having to create a martial culture from scratch. Right. 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 With some help from the elves of Dorthonian, but the elves of Dorthonian don't really know what these guys should be doing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Because the Noldor, their, their entire, their entire military strategy is form a line and kill the orcs as they get close to you. Right, that's basically been well, as far as the elves of Dorthonian go. That's basically been their entire experience of warfare up until this point. Whereas, whereas humans, they have to be a little bit more circumspect. Right, <laughs> like, they need to they need to be a little bit more careful with the situation. They are not fresh from right. They're not going to be mowing down the orcs of their like grass yeah. like the Thanorians did in the first battle. Right? Yeah. Right. Yeah, no, it's not even close. Um, so, so they are, like I said, working from scratch. Whereas the Hador, the the House of Hador, was already a more martial culture right. than the Bayornians to start with. Right. And basically, um, I can see Hador and Finrod and Fingen kind of working together to figure out what they like what their best what their strengths and weaknesses are right to put right. together something you know right there exactly i mean i see the house of hador having a more clearly defined and collaboratively thought through military role in the noldor war machine up there in the northwest right mm-hmm. um they know what they're doing they know what they're doing they know their relationship to that whereas again as you say you know, Angrod and Ignor know about, um, you know, I mean, they welcome the Beorians up there and are kindly disposed towards them, but don't really exactly know what to do with them um, and are probably not quite as collaborative as um, Hador and Fingen are, uh, you know, militarily speaking. Um yeah. What other elements of Elven material culture would you say that they have uh, adopted? Like, I mean, obviously, there are going to be things that are going to mark the House of Beor as having dwelt among the Elves, right? They will be their clothes and things would be very different from the clothes of the Haladin mm-hmm. for sure, right? Also, their agriculture is probably going to be very different. The way that they do agriculture is probably going to be a lot closer to what the Elves do than what other human cultures are doing, right? right? They're probably doing more permaculture, um, like we've talked about the elves doing. Right. Um, Which, you know, when... Because they weren't an agricultural society when they got here either. They were a hunter-gatherer society. Right. Right? Right. And so when people at the House of Hador or even the House of Halith come to to see them, they're going to be like, that's interesting, right? Right. Um, but I would think that their their agriculture, particularly, would be more advanced. 
So in, in while in some areas they're actually you know on the lower end of the spectrum, they're essentially the breadbasket of the you know of that line, right? Right. right. Yeah, yeah. Right. Now that makes sense. That makes sense. Um, yeah, their clothes would be fancy, but their armor crude, right? Because they would have learned, they would have, clothing and making clothing is certainly something that they would have learned from the elves in Nargothrond. Mm. And the elves they of Nargothrond... Elven styles and elven methods of clothing making, yeah. So yeah, that's... They would have wanted to dress them nicely, right? Because they're taking care of them. Like, they, they would, it's, it's... But they wouldn't have been teaching them, you know, armor making, right? Because... They don't need armor making, right? But they need to make nice clothes so they can live in Nargothrond like everybody else. Right. And so there would, I, I would think, you know, in that on uh, on casual non-military occasions, I would think that the uh, the House of Beor would look pretty snappy compared to, uh, certainly compared to the Haladin, though perhaps that's no great mastery. Um, but, um, but even I would think compared to the House of Hadar, where again, the emphasis, their primary interaction with the elves has been military. Right. right. Um, and so that's the, where the, the chief influences would be. So you're suggesting that Finrod has dressed Andreth as uh, an, el- an elvish maiden and then sent her off to Ladris where she runs into... To meet his brother, like, yeah. Oh. Exactly. Yeah, so it's a very Galadriel, Aragorn, Arwen situation going on. Uh-huh. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. That's just right. Because, uh, I mean, and, th- and that's, yes, I, I mean, that really fits the sort of picture, right? That when he, when Ignor first meets Andreth, he would, um, she would look like an elf maid, you know? Um, and, uh, I mean, there would be differences, but, but th- you know, that would, it would definitely be like that. Um so um, yeah, JJ exactly. JJ says they'd be basically become dandies. Yeah, exactly. No, that's just what they are. You know, uh, an increasingly discontented dandies. Um, yeah, I, I do imagine there's a younger generation of folks who like you know wear their fancy elvish clothing with like deliberate rips and things like that. You know, to like the those those rebellious Bayorian teenagers that we talked about before. You know probably you're saying their style needs to be grunge yeah there's like or maybe even like a goth bayorian subculture you know like yeah that's exactly yeah without the makeup maybe but uh but uh or maybe so maybe like really really pale and black to emphasize like we're kept inside in the caves and and it's like a form of protest right i don't know um why wouldn't they have makeup why wouldn't they yeah absolutely they've got nothing else to do uh (laughs) (laughs) yeah no that's great that's great yeah no definitely okay Quick, before I devolve even further, let's move on to the House of Haleth, which, of course, we've already touched on the other houses some, so the other two will be quicker. Um, but we have, um, uh, Nick, as I was saying, you were imagining them being kind of in the middle. They're a little bit more, like they have more uh, more, more bronze or even steel items, uh, you know, in, than the Bayorians did at the beginning. Right. So the House of Haleth, they don't have a lot of... Um, they don't have a lot 
of metallurgy or metallurgical knowledge themselves. Right. Um, but they have had trade with the dwarves and then later trade with the Noldor. They probably aren't getting a lot of metal items from like the Avari or anything like that. But, mm -hmm. you know, they did have trade with the dwarves and then later the, the Noldor, like I said. And so I imagine that these folks, probably each household has one metal item. Right. Like one metal either tool or weapon or something like that. In the case of uh, of Haldad, he happens to have a spear, which right. gets passed down. Yeah, which just becomes the big deal. And that's why right. it becomes a big deal, because it is a big deal. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, having a metal spear is not a small thing. And it would be kind of interesting if they were using bronze in a in a place where most people are already using steel because bronze is a lot easier to repair mm -hmm. um like for example to sharpen your bronze blade you don't have to you don't have to grind it quite so much because you can do, do a lot of the sharpening just by hammering it. Mm -hmm. um because it's more malleable than steel is. Right. Right. So. Right. There, so, there, there are reasons why you'd want bronze over, uh, over steel, even though steel is obviously harder and stronger. Right. Right. Bronze is lighter too, isn't it? A little bit. I, uh, maybe a little. I don't remember off the top of my head. Um, yeah. yeah. Copper is thirty-three, and iron is heavier. Right. 33 is <laughs> wait no 33 is I don't know what I'm saying the point is copper is, is lower on the periodic yeah, table yes. than iron and I'm gonna not say the wrong numbers because <laughs> I am technically yeah. a chemistry teacher and that's bad <laughs> yeah yeah um, yeah so it's anyway I, so we're imagining them they have what do they do for armor do they have armor Right. When we meet them, they are a non-martial culture. They don't have, I mean, their clothing is probably particularly tough because they're working every day. You know, they live in a dangerous world. So, yeah, they probably do have some Oil level. leather, of maybe. Right. Yeah. Maybe some leather, um, some, 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 they would have some, like, hide. But, I mean, they because they'd have hides and, and furs, right? Yeah. But leather as protection is, it's not as much of a thing as you typically see in movies. Right. Um, so, you know, but um, definitely tough clothing, but no armor per se, because they have no military tradition whatsoever. Right. right. Um, they're not even, when we meet them, they're not even an organized group. Right. 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 It's Haleth who's going to bring them together. Now, right. do they do anything? What changes do we see between, like, the time right before the stockade battle? And the time right before they enter the uh, Nan Dungorthem, so they've had some time, right, including several months where they're out there by Doriath, hoping to mm -hmm. get through. Um, uh, have they made preparations? Like as they're pr going on their journey, are we seeing ways? I mean, they will already have come a, a pretty significant way along the road to becoming now a unified culture under Hollis leadership. Do we see them taking, I mean, there's at least going to be a kind of a subcast like her Amazons, right. Of right. more militant figures. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So they're going to have 
something of a martial culture by the time they get to Doriath. We're going to see a bit more of that um, uh, later on in the season. Um, but their martial culture is mostly going to revolve around hunting. Right. Um, and hunting of large animal, large game. Right. Um, so, you know, rather than rather than soldiers, they have hunters who would also function as soldiers in a pinch, right? Right, right. Or maybe perhaps warriors rather than soldiers, right? Yeah, yeah. Right. Um, more, more like, um, more like a Germanic tribe, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, um, yeah. yeah. I mean, there's plenty yeah, they've, of. They've... Go ahead. Yeah, they've come together as a group at this point. So they're and they're traveling together. They're, so they are migrating, and they've obviously survived the stockade battle. Mm-hmm. So most of them took part in fighting there. So right. even if they're not like officially technically a soldier, there's a lot of people now with experience of battle. There's a lot of concern for safety that would translate into setting up their camp right. with an eye to guards and all that so yeah I, I would say that what you would see would look not terribly unlike a Germanic tribe in right. Northern Europe right okay okay and so when they finally then settle down they're once again going to sort of become more dispersed right they're going to be like bunches of individual homesteads in the forest um, mostly governing themselves. Uh, this, I mean, they're still Haleth, and so there is a tradition of... It's not that not that they have no central leadership, but their, the, their central leadership is probably going to mean least to them of any of the cultures of, of men, right? The, I'm just thinking of the way they in would, which, like, they would keep we remain independent. Streak, yeah. Definitely, and therefore value the each man being a king of his own household right. thing. Um but they have developed a communal lifestyle now mm-hmm. and that that will continue at Amanol. They would have basically a town there right. where there's multiple families living together. And it's not everyone. There's other households right. scattered throughout the forest. But that element of communal living is what's changed because right. prior to the stockade, that didn't exist for them. They were strictly homesteads. Right. Now they're kind of a mix of homesteads and the community and coming together for important events. Right. Right. Okay. Okay. So maybe more of like a hill fort kind of situation where it's Mm -hmm. a very defined location where everyone can be. Right. Right. And we can still see this, like, again, in Turin's story. Right. I keep coming back to Turin because this is the other place where we really see this culture in the later Silmarillion. Um so yeah, I mean, when he comes back, and you know, t- during the time of his happy marriage uh, with Neonor, uh, it's 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 in exactly that kind of a town environment. I mean, you do get the sense of him living among. All, he's not just like living with a random family, you know, like in their own independent homestead. So um, you would have that, though. There are also clearly from the, especially from the versions of the, um, from the versions of the. Uh, uh, of the story in the Children of Hurin, clearly those remote homesteads still scattered around when he's with the outlaws. We see that especially. So, 
Um, right. And I love the emphasis that the, this is still a completely non-literate culture. They would have uh, only oral traditions, uh, very much focused on oral traditions. Um, and I would think that, again, another, you know, Marie thinking along similar lines, one of the consequences of um, what they have gone through, right, and how it has changed their culture would be this sort of like regular gathering and remembrance, right, remembrance of what they have done and, you know, who they have become and of the times that were um, in this. I mean, as we know that Haleth is still looking back, you know, at her father and brother who are gone and, um, you know, all of them would be kind of looking and then looking back, of course, at their, um, uh, you know, their traumatic experience in Nandan Gortheb, but they would be, you know, they would be remembering all of the things that they have survived and all of the, uh, the you know, and of course the hunting of, of Tevildo is going to be another you know, major thing that they will be remembering. Um, but again, all of this would be done in an oral context right there. Right. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, and dogs. Yes, dogs are important there, clearly. Uh, uh, hunting dogs. Definitely a dog culture. Um, again, I'm remembering... Uh the outlaws, I, I think yeah. I put the dogs on the slide because horses are on the slide for the House of Potter. I think <laughs> yeah, that's why. Yeah. That no, but it's 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 important. I think that's and didn't didn't we didn't we have a dog? Didn't well, we there briefly? Howeth briefly had a dog. Ha- right? Howeth had a dog that is then gone by the time the stockade battle happened. <laughs> right. And right. Dave were very quick to point that out to me. However, Howeth's grandmother disappears in the interim between those two events. Hala's right. mother disappears in the interim between those two events. No comment was made on that, but no. her dog, what happened to her dog? It's like, it's been 12 years, but you think happened to her dog. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, see, no one was, ac- no one was accusing, no, no one was accusing anyone of eating the grandmother, you know, um, but yeah, yeah, absolutely. Anyway, yeah, no, but dogs. That was a deleted scene. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> no yeah very deleted um i sorry i just paused for a second because of course there were a con- there was a conspicuous lack of dogs after the stockade uh as we discussed at the time um as so the dogs come back the dogs Where's come the back dogs right the dogs come back but see that's what i was suddenly i just suddenly had to think what if what if bella gives them dogs like what if they got dogs from doriath they need to get them from somewhere, right? I mean, they could find them, I guess, but um, but wouldn't it be kind of fun? Wouldn't they? Wouldn't if if they were gifted dogs? I don't know. I mean, I don't. Know. Not, not not like Bellic that's going to be a scene. But Bellig's a huntsman, presumably he has hounds. Yeah, or at so. least knows people who do, <laughs> right? So, uh, um, I think I was picturing them maybe finding dogs in the aftermath of the stockade battle. In the yeah. you know, dogs who had run away from the fight and were still perfectly alive somewhere off screen that's right that's right the, the dogs, the dogs had all gone done. off somewhere into a happy place that we just never see them again um uh, yes sure. exactly um but yeah if they if they received something from the elves that then they could incorporate into their culture without feeling like they've been given elvish culture that would probably be a neat yeah, I, I think that would be. That seems to me Elvish like the clothes. They don't want Elvish yeah. stuff. They're they're not interested in books, but you know, dogs. <laughs> they'll take you up on that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That 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 does seem to be like the kind of gift that she would accept, right? Um, 
yes. Yeah. Okay. And then, of course, we have her signs of leadership, the pelt of Tevildo, and uh, the uh, and, and her spear, right? Which becomes yes, a scepter spear. after it's broken. Yeah. The, yes. the spear should definitely be on this list. I forget why I left it off. <laughs> you don't <laughs> like really that spear. <laughs> I, I just keep forgetting about it. <laughs> I thought, I think I just already had the medal in the other part of the slide. Right. Yeah, right. But yeah. Okay. Nick has to continually remind me that Hal has a spear. For some reason, I keep forgetting about her spear. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And then finally, the House of Hador. So we start off with them as nomadic herdsmen, horse culture. So, like, now when we say horse culture, what are we think? Are we thinking, like, like Mongols here or less extreme than that? Or... I mean, everything's less extreme than Mongols. <laughs> well, I know that's yeah. why I cited them as the as the as the end of the so, spectrum. Yeah, there. less extreme than that. Um, but they they're moving from place to place, so they have to pack mm-hmm. up all their belongings and travel. And presumably, they're using horses as pack animals, and they're using horses for hunting, and they're using horses to herd their animals around. So the horses are quite useful to them. Yeah. And integrated into their lifestyle. Yeah. So somewhere between the Mongols and say the um, the the Plains tribes of North America, mm-hmm. uh, post contact obviously because pre contact no horses, um, but yeah, 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 um, right, right, and and I'm still I think I suggested last time that I would kind of like them to have, um, like. Shetland ponies. Yes. Well, like Icelandic uh, horses, Icelandic. basically. Yeah. Okay. It's just what I'm thinking. Because um, you can build a perfectly good, um, you know, cavalry-based warrior culture uh, with Icelandic horses uh, if you don't have any other horses, right? If you've never seen, you know, uh, like an Arabian horse. So, um, uh, so because, I mean, there should be a real, like the, the you know, Kelligorm's cavalry should be something quite stunningly different than, oh, yeah. um, you know, the horses of the Esther ladders. Um, yeah. 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 I- I'm fine with elves having Andalusians and the house of Hador not. Right. Right. Yeah. Riding absolutely. unstriped zebras. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yes, these are like, you know, more wild. Uh, uh, like my- Mongolian wild horses are, are like that. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. And I just, I, I absolutely adore the idea of um, Estelad being like the old thing, the, 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 this kind of regular gathering, them being a completely nomadic culture, but having this gathering site. Um, it's, it, it is, uh, I, it's just a lovely interpretation of that, you know, word, right. Of that, of that, of that name. I think it's really cool. And I love the way, as I was saying on the map earlier on, having them be nomadic helps them have opportunities to butt heads with every single elvish culture in the area because they're all over the place and they're not going to do the boundary thing, you know, like that some of the boundaries are going to naturally happen, right? Like the big rivers. So fortunately, the River Gellion is large, right? So the River Gellion is going to keep them from 
you know, wandering too far either into Osiria and into the, you know, encountering the unfriendship of the Green Elves or into encountering the much more serious unfriendship of, of Carinthir, right? If they, if they get over there. Um, but that's still going to happen, right? It's still going to happen. You know it's going to happen. Um, so, yeah. Well, their conflicts are not unlike, they're not unlike the conflicts in Oklahoma, right? Because the, the, the farmer and the rancher um, aren't friends essentially, mm-hmm. right? right? So they come through, they tear up the ground, and then they move on. And the elves are just like, "But are are you going to fix that?" Right. Like, right, right. It would look to them like orc work, like wanton yes. hewing, right? Um, like slashing at things that were not even in their way. Again, I'm like the you know quotes about elves, uh, you know about orcs are you know kind of floating in, right? It's it's what it would look like. They would look at where you know these people and their herds had gone through, and they'd be like, oh, the devastation of the land that they've just left behind them, right? Uh, as they wander on, yeah, that would be an issue, even for the non-touchy, right? I mean, uh, yeah, definitely, definitely. I mean, I would think that the elves of Doriath would not be looking kindly on them, right? Um, they wouldn't be encountering right. them Doria, much because they can't go in, but... Doriath and Nanomoth have boundaries that are protected, so it right. would be difficult for the men of Bestalad to wander into Doriath. Right, no, but, but they would Malia. see them is the point. Like, they would come up to Doriath, and so, like, there would be times right. when the elves of Doriath would be coming out and seeing, like, look at what happened. Like, this used to be a really nice... Because eventually, I mean, occasionally, surely, they come out and wander in the lands, right? And they would come out and they'd be like, who wrecked the joint, <laughs> right? This, is, this place used to be nice. Um, uh, and, uh, yeah, so that, that, that's, the, that's the kind of encounter. I know they wouldn't be wandering into Doriath or into Non-Elmoth, but they're wandering right near them and around them. And so there would be at least um, enough encounters, certainly, uh, for the, the humans to be aware of their presence and maybe uneasy about their presence because they would be encountering hostility. Because all the elves would be kind of hostile to this, to the way that they carry on, right? And this goes back to what we talked about, um, you know, a couple of weeks back when we were talking about elves and, and men and talking about their different relationships to nature, right? Um, you know, humans seeing nature, like life is a struggle against, it's us, it's us versus nature, right? And we, and we aim to survive is kind of the attitude, you know, of, of you know, of cultures in this place, Um I mean, in, in this, you know, sort of place in their, uh, you know, in, in their development. Um, and the elves just have a very different relationship with the world around them and would not understand that entire attitude. Um, so, yes, it would seem, you know, there there probably are, you know, men of the Estelad culture who are indeed, like, corrupt and nasty, but they would seem to the elves more corrupt than they actually are. Again, it would, they would look like orcs, you know, or certainly the evidence of their passing would look like an orc army had been through there, you know. Um, at least there would be similarities there f- to the elvish eye, doubtless. Um, but, okay, anyway. Um, so, when Hador takes them north, He's taking them north. They are making a choice. They are making the strongest choice of all of the human cultures to ally themselves with the elves, to join with the elves. They are, they are answering 
what is almost a recruitment call by the elves. Um, so they've made a deliberate choice. How is this deliberate choice reflected um, in their uh, in their culture, like in their material culture and in the way that they live? Are they are they still nomadic up there in in Dorloman? I think that so the way that we've set it up is that Hador um, and a small group of humans uh, go to live kind of amongst the elves for a time um, and then Fingolfin says hey we've got this stretch of land that nobody's using you know you guys should settle over there and Hador's like you know what that's great I'm going to bring my folks over there um, but we're going to do things a little differently than we've done in the past, mm-hmm. right? And they shift to a more stable, um, closer to what to the elvish lifestyle that they, that he's seen, but a hum, more human version of that, right? You know, they they adopt civilization to a, to a degree. Um, also, they're going to be wearing armor that is mm-hmm. elven armor. So they right. are outfitted the same way Thingan's elven soldiers are outfitted. Mm-hmm. So full full gear, full kit of weapons and armor that is... If you uh, have, you know, Noldorin metal armor and weapons, you almost need a house to keep it in, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, like, you're not going to go around with that on the back of... Like, in a tent on the back of a horse, right? Um, right. Yeah. And one of the things that we, you know, so we had talked about, so the Estelot culture does have their own metallurgy when we meet them, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but you're talking about, like, there's a guy in, like, out of every three different traveling group, there's one guy who carries around his portable forge, and he builds a new bloomery out of clay everywhere he goes, and sets up shop, right? Right. Um, and so they're kind of making things out of metal, but it's not the same. Right. Um, um, but when they move, now they have to maintain all this equipment. Right. Right. So that means that they need stable shops, right? They need. You need a real forge. Have, yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. So even just their manufacturing requires them to have, you know, small, t- like at least towns. Right. Right. Um, right. Yeah. I, I could see it. And one of the things that they would clearly be doing is studying Smithcraft. Like there would be people who would be learning Smithcraft from the Noldor um, up right. there um, more actively than any of the other two so that their own smithcraft becomes uh, obviously sub Noldorin but um, right but the the closest to it the basics right Right. so they're they're smiths that already have an understanding of how to do the basics go and kind of observe what the Noldorin smiths are doing they're like oh okay I can do that and then they go back and they develop it over time yeah right and so like a, they don't get that same like speed boost that the Baorians get when they first arrive in Nargothron, but they do 
have they they have a broader base of existing knowledge. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I um so here uh here's what I this this sounds like a really fun creative challenge, right? Like the armor of the House of Hador would be on the one hand, like the armor that the, some of it would just be given to them by the Noldor, right. would just be straight up Noldoran armor, but not all of it, right? They would make their own as well. And the armor that they make would both be derived, they, they're learning the technology from the Noldor, so it would be very much, in, very strongly influenced mm-hmm. uh, by the Noldoran styles and the Noldoran approach to armor, but it would also be influenced by their own traditions, right? And by where they came from. Right. Um, which is primarily light cavalry, right, is the way that they right. have always fought. And presumably, again, thinking about the kind of discussion that Hador and Fingen are obviously going to be having off screen, right, um, presumably this is still going to be their role. Like light cavalry is still going to be primarily the role of of, uh, of the House of Dorlom and maybe developing into heavy cavalry. Um, but you'd think cavalry because that's been their culture and that's what they know and they, do, they are most comfortable with. And... Um, and their horses, of course, would be greatly improved um, when they are <laughs> when they get into the north, right? Um, so, so yeah, that they would be anyway. I'm just I'm I'm just kind of thinking, um, you know, about what they would. It, it would be a fun challenge to make human armor made by humans and but derived from Noldoran styles and methods, and yet also you know reflecting the uh, the sort of nomadic light cavalry traditions that they had had before. So. Mm-hmm. You would want relics of the original in the yeah. final product yeah. in the same way that the various styles of Greek co- uh, columns in stone reflect the time period when it was made from wood. Right, right, right. Like all the curly hues at the top and everything, That's right. you don't need to do that with stone column. Right, right. <laughs> but it's a relic of the past. So the same idea that there would be something about it that is reminiscent of what they had before. Right. But upgraded. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So I'm thinking when we, by the time we get to Hurin and Morwen and Turin, and again here I'm thinking of the early segments of the children of, of the later children of Hurin, right? Um, what we seem to see there is something like a Mead Hall culture, right? Mm-hmm. There's a great hall, there's the, the Lord's Great Hall, right? In the center, Broda takes over the hall, right? When he comes in later on, the hall that gets burned down eventually, right? Um, so I'm thinking that might be the kind of evolution of this as they kind of they get up there in the north and they kind of put down roots they're still going to be like i mean they would have been nomadic in like you know clan groups and stuff like that before down in the south they're still going to be in those groups um and they still even might wander but they're going to have centers now like instead of the one center at Estelad where they all gathered there's going to be they're each going to have their great halls because then nick you also have like the forge, right, which is not going to move, and so you have the great right. hall, which doesn't move. Um, uh, even if you know everybody doesn't have to necessarily live there in a town, but it would be you know the central place where everybody could go. Um, uh, and it's, that's just kind of I'm, I'm so I'm I'm imagining like mead halls, something a little bit more yeah. like 
Rohiric culture, really. Not exactly like right. Rohiric culture, but similar to it. Yeah. They're blonde, they have horses, and they have meat hall. <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, I mean, we're, we're, we're pretty close. <laughs> we're, we're, we're very Rohirrim. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The the Rohirrim don't take after strangers. Uh, so, yeah, yeah, that's... Um, yes, exactly. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah. Um, okay. Um, and the sign of leadership is the dragon helm, right? This is, we, we have the dra- the gifting of the dragon helm there at the end of right. episode six. Um, and this becomes really the symbol of Hador's status as peer of elven lords, right? Him kind right. of taking his place among the elven lords in a way which is very different from what we see any other human doing. As much respect as uh, Finrod has for Beor and Andreth, you know, Finrod became BFFs, or at least BF for a while, uh, with um, <laughs> with BFs for as long as he could uh, with humans. Um, but but did not. But but it's not the same, right? The relationship, even with Finrod and 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 Andreth or uh, or Bari here, is not the same as Fingon and Hador. Um, you know, the, the way that Hador is really going to become one of his captains, and certainly. Um, uh, uh, was his face? Rog, uh, Rogren is going to basically kind of see Hador as 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 like a fellow captain, right, under Fingon alongside him, um, <clears throat> and so that definitely puts him in a different place. Right. Yes, H- Hador's entire agreement with Fingon has the nature of a lord recruiting lesser lords right. for battles. Right. <laughs> so that's been the the basis of it all along, which means that Dor Lomond is independent and it's ruled by Hador and his descendants, but it's still very much a um, a formal agreement with like a liege lord and all that sort of thing. It's not what we would view as independent. Right, 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 right. Yes, and, and, and to answer JJ's question, um, I do envision... Um, brigands drinking in the reek and brats rolling on the full floor among the dogs uh, in in Dorloman. That's pretty much how they roll, I think, uh, more or less. You know, um, I mean, looked at from a certain point of view, <laughs> anyway. Uh, um, but yeah, no, I, I, I yeah, I, I think you, you're right about Fingon's recruiting and like his mentality throughout that. I mean, that that's that's definitely. Um, but I and I love the dragon helm as a symbol, right? And the differences there, right? The differences between the staff of Beor, the staff and the stole, as we had among you know the house of Beor, which are both of them really connected to their own heritage, right? And they've passed through the Elvish influence, right? But in the end, they have made the choice to like remain themselves and to continue forward in their own mission. And so their, their kind of symbols point to that, right? Um, uh, uh, Haleth's symbols are about her own overcoming, right? Uh, you know, the spear from her father, so yeah. it's the link back to her father and her brother who are dead, but it's, you know, also the spear with which she has won her battles and the pelt of her uh, of her foe that she has slain. Um, here we have the gift of the elves, right? This this special helm, um, which is you know a gift to the elves and then a gift from the elves, um, and that it seems perfect, 
right? Uh, not to mention, of course, obviously we know the future history of the Dragon Helm and its connection, you know, its previous connection to Glaurung and its future connection to Glaurung. Um, but, um, uh, but yeah, I think that's, I think that's, I think that that works really nicely. Yeah, obviously we didn't come up with that particular symbol of leadership that was already in the story. <laughs> exactly right. Yeah, no, we didn't invent that one. Um, but sort of having it be one thing that was not necessarily obvious, by the way, I think is, I mean, if we are essentially treating the dragon helm almost like a crown, right? Like it is the crown of the, of, 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 of the Lord of Dor Loman. That's not explicit in the book. Like it's explicit that he has it, right, and that he wears it into battle, uh, or at least some of them do, right? Hurin doesn't, I guess. Um, but um, um, I think Hurin has to have awesome hair, right? Like, yeah, I, I just that's I, why. I, yeah, it's what's why. That's why he doesn't want to wear it, right? Um, I mean, anyway. that that's very common with uh, with actors as well, <laughs> right? Yeah. Right. Yeah, they don't like to wear helmets because it 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 it, uh, it makes them you know not as attractive. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's a little hard to act for something completely covered in your face. That's not it. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, there are stories where people do manage to act with a mask over their face for the entire time. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. But I think I've not, seen you know, one or two easy. films like that. Yeah. Yeah, Mad Mandalorian. Yeah, that as Lenskop was just mentioned. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> there are definitely examples, but but anyway, yeah, no, it's understandable. So anyway, so yeah, so but but mostly it's going to be like the crown of it's going and and that I think is cool. You know that he would wear it not only that that Hodor would wear it not just in battle, but it would be like a regal, you know piece of headgear mm-hmm. which of course is also very like the the crown of gondor which is also a battle helm originally right. um a slightly fancied up battle helm and this battle helm is already sufficiently fancied up uh to serve yeah. as a crown no question um not to mention the fact that the impact of it right i mean the kind of the kind of awe that the dragon helm inspires is also very much you know uh in line with the, uh, um, uh, with the, as like kind of a, you know, to put it on for the, the, the kind of effect that you would want to have as, you know, mm-hmm. a sitting king, like wearing a crown, right? I mean, the, 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 the purpose of the crown, you know, not to show off wealth as crowns were so often designed to show off wealth, um, but really to show off both the connection with the elves, right? The connection with Fingon and just authority, you know, just power, um, uh, which of course is usually what wealth meant, uh, when you had a fancy crown with lots of jewels on it. Um, yes. but this is a little bit more direct, uh, in its way, uh, and not, uh, not, not just quite like that. Okay. Other thoughts about the house of Haldor, other things that we need to, that we need to focus on. Are they literate? Do we, do we, do they, do we get writing here? They could learn it, obviously, from the elves. Yeah, I would think after they're settled in Dorlaman, that would be something that develops in their culture. Mm-hmm. Um, among yeah. other things, they have contact with Ladros. So even if they don't learn it directly from the elves, they can learn it from the House of Thayor. Right. 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 Yeah. 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 Okay. Cool. 
Yeah, cool. the, the, the House of Halif is only illiterate because they don't want to. <laughs> yeah, by choice. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 It's just part of the stubbornness of the, I mean, they, they want to keep their own traditions and their own traditions alive. And, and yes. Yeah. Um, they might even consider writing a, you know, a newfangled elvish thing. An elvish trick. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. That they, you know. They don't. Uh, they don't need any of that. Thank you. They are fine. They are perfectly fine with their traditions uh, on their own. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Especially cool. since a trick that is taught to the Baorians while they are pets of the elves in Nargothrond. Right. Exactly. Um, I'm really looking forward to that. Andreth Halleth scene now. <laughs> but yeah. we'll, we'll get there. We'll get there soon. Um, speaking of soon, so next time, our next session is going to be on Thursday, May 6th, um, and we're going to talk about Episode 7, right? So we're going to, uh, uh, with the, we're going to, we're going to get to the Great Council at Estelot, right? So we get... Um, we get we get Hador and the choice of the people of we we finally get to call them the people of Hador instead of just yes. the Estelaters and we uh, um, and then we also uh, of course we're going to get Amlock and fake Amlock and 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 all that so uh, mm-hmm. uh, exciting times ahead here next time and we didn't a hundred percent finish episode six either there's still a little bit of ground that we should probably tidy up before we uh, put. Uh, wasn't the frame? No, wait. We did the frame, and we were going to save talking about the frame for next time. Wasn't that? Wasn't that what yeah. happened? We did everything uh, but the frame, didn't we? Something like that. Yeah, yeah. We did everything but the frame. I, I, yeah. So we can lump the frame together with future frame stories. Right. Okay. Not problem. Yeah, I thought we came pretty close to finishing uh, episode. We're essentially six. doing that with the script discussion for the next uh, two episodes as well. Okay. Uh, because we. Realized that we had a lot of setup to a lot of stuff that we had to work into the frame over the next uh, over episodes 11, 12, and 13. And we wanted to make sure that we knew how those episodes were going to feel before we made decisions yeah. like that. So, yeah. yeah, this is of course the Christmas festival, which leads to a coup, which leads to the death of the queen, and there's a bit of a rebellion going on with yeah. the sons. And you yeah. sort of need to hit all those points at the right spot. Right. Yep. Right. Keep Sauron in Christmas. Right. Yep. 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 Absolutely. Cool. Awesome. Um, very good. So thanks everybody. Sauron for... is the reason for the season. Sauron is the reason for the season. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I still, I'm not sure whether I'm brave enough to do t-shirts about that, but anyway, uh, um... if you don't, I will. <laughs> I, I have red bubble too. <laughs> I recommend coming up with what the actual Haradrim holiday is that celebrates Sauron, so we don't have to keep calling it Christmas. No. As soon as we call it whatever it is that's not right. Christmas, this will seem much less uncomfortable. But if we just say is the reason for the season, then then we don't have to worry about it. You see, exactly. Then we we can be that's both true. funny and offensive while also being <laughs> perfectly appropriately accurate to the story. <laughs> Oh, dear. Anyway. You all have fun with this. <laughs> this, is, this is Marie slowly stepping aside <laughs> and, and stepping out of the line of fire. Totally true. Absolutely. Oh, uh, she, is, she is wiser than we, as always. 
<laughs> thank you everybody for joining us and I will say as always thanks for listening and Godspeed